Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 372. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 372 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning mastering engineer Glenn Schick. Glenn travels the world mastering records. And you might ask yourself, well, how does he do that? Where's, where's his mastering room? Does he have a mastering room in every city? Well, kind of. He actually only masters on headphones. That's right. He hasn't worked on speakers since 2012, and he does it all in the box, all on headphones, and we're going to talk all about that, including his travels, his travel tips, and many other things, and I'm very excited to have him on. So, Glenn Schick, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about our passion. I know many people who don't have a passion. They might have hobbies or interests, but they're not really over the moon about one particular thing. They don't have anything that really drives them. You know, they work, they have family, and that's, that's good, of course, but they don't have a passion. They lack that passion in their lives that drives them, that makes them tick. I have met and know many who have retired, but do not know what to do with their time. They're bored all the time and they may take up some activities just to fill their time. Not because they really care about them, but just because they're bored and they want to fill their time. I consider those of us who do have a passion fortunate. I'm assuming most of you listening to this have a passion for audio, and I feel grateful that audio drives my brain. It makes me tick. A passion like audio gives one identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and of course, a sense of community. And Think of it this way, our passion contributes to things that bring people joy and informs them. That could be movies, music, games, podcasts, radio, television, audiobooks, etc. I feel grateful that I don't feel driven to retire, but rather think of doing audio well into my later years. I'm not trying to get away from it because it brings me happiness. So as long as I can hear well enough and contribute my knowledge, I'm happy. And you know what? If I can get paid for it in my later years too, all the better. If anything, just sharing my audio experience and knowledge with up-and-comers makes me happy. So if you're truly, truly passionate about audio and it's not just a job, my ask is treasure it, embrace it, share your knowledge with those who want to learn. Because it's a gift, my friends. It really is that we all have this thing that we love and that we care so much about. So don't take it for granted. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. 
easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Glenn Schick, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Let's get started with the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, New York City. Beautiful, diverse Queens. What was your upbringing like as it relates to music or electronics or audio? Was there some event or person in your life that brought those things to your attention? Well, I grew up in New York in late 70s, early 80s, which kind of dates me now. And it was really a very seminal time in rock and roll, in music making, in uh, hip hop, in um, electronics. And I kind of had my hands in all of that then. I think I started very early with recording technology and some of the music technology stuff that was coming out, new synthesizers, music software that was just kind of at the very beginnings of its stage of development. So I, I kind of was into all of that when it started. And it was really inspiring being in New York City during the heyday of music was just so adventurous at that time. And there was 
just these great clubs like Max's Kansas City mm. and CBGB's and Mud Club. And, you know, you could see Lou Reed one night and Judas Priest on another. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the next day you'd be watching a reggae band at the reggae lounge. You know, you take a trip to the South Bronx and see somebody doing their thing on the cardboard on the streets. So but it was an exciting time for music. When did the idea of recording or the the production of records come onto your radar? Uh, I guess I started as a musician. I was just a kid rock and roll guitar player as a young man. And my band started recording. And I think the first things we did, we went into some guys in Brooklyn. I think his name was Frankie. He had a, a nice little analog studio. And we recorded a bunch of our songs there. And I was really fascinated and, and kind of intrigued by the whole process. A little later on, I met this kid named Alan, whose I think father or uncle managed the record plant mm. in New York City. And uh, he took us in on off hours to record our songs. And this was now like we went from somebody's basement studio to a Wonderland state-of-the-art analog recording. And I was just like, I'm in. <laughs> That's it. Many of us go through this moment where we make the decision, we come to the crossroads of, am I a musician or am I an audio professional? Did you have that? Yeah, I think I did, actually. I had a lot of years, you know, playing in bands and, and trying to be a successful musician, which I think is a theme that runs across every engineer nowadays, at least from my generation and generations that came after. There were definitely like almost every mastering engineer I meet is a guitar player. And I don't know why that is, but it is. Yeah, I think we've all had our shot or attempt to be successful music-wise. And some guys I know are. I've had bands that got signed on record deals and some decent stuff. But when I look back in retrospect, I go, yeah, we weren't so great. <laughs> and I think at some point, your engineering and studio stuff will usurp the music and you find yourself with more success in that field. And the other thing is sometimes you just find yourself enjoying it more. And for me, that became the case where it was just more enjoyable to be in a calmer environment and less full of personalities and more amenable to my personality. <laughs> so in the band you were playing and you encountered multi-track recording first, but from your exposure as an audio person, I assume that you got your start in recording studios before mastering came onto your radar. Absolutely. I started, I guess, professionally. I got hired by one of the first hip-hop labels in New York, a little record company called B-Boy Records, based out of the South Bronx. That was in the early 80s. And when they hired me, they didn't really know what they were doing. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And they'd say, can you produce? And I said, sure. So they'd hire me to produce records, which I didn't really know what that meant at that time. And we'd go in the studio and my partner, which was another rapper on the label named Spider D, we'd go record in these nice analog 24 track studios. And we got the off hours without an engineer. So we knew some very basic basics and we try to teach ourselves how to cut and mix a record, which was a trial by fire. Wow. 
How long did you carry on in the tracking and the mixing capacity before you made the change over to mastering? Or was that, was that a gradual thing or an overnight thing? It actually happened pretty quickly. I was tracking, producing, and mixing for, I think I started like very late 70s, and then I stopped around when I opened my mastering studio in 94. So it was a while. Yeah, I would say I, I was floundering a bit as a mixer because I couldn't really find my niche. But I didn't really have a great direction at that point. And I was working with a really great producer who I admired a lot. He was a classic rock producer that did like Black Sabbath and ELO and all these like great classic rock titles. And he pushed me into the mastering thing in that mid-90s period and brought over some, uh, it was like a Neumann rack from a transfer console that had a bunch of EQs and filters and compressors. And he said, you should try mastering one of your projects. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, you'd probably be good at it. And I did. And my clients were like really happy. And I was kind of shocked at it. There were two mastering guys in Atlanta at that time, and there were about 400 mixers. And I went, hmm, mastering might not be a bad way forward. <laughs> and that's kind of how my change from mix to mastering went from there. So I never looked back. Did you then or do you now ever miss being in the tracking environment or mixing? I'd say there are a couple things you miss from there. Being part of the creation process as opposed to the post-production, there's something special about being part of that team that makes the creation process happen and part of the song writing or song playing or production. Sometimes I do miss it, but the nights that I get to go to sleep at a normal hour and uh, have like a, <laughs> a regular schedule, I don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, that I, I totally identify with all of that. What interests you about mastering? What, what's attractive about that particular part of the art? I guess some of the things that I really liked about it, you know, when I was a kid, I'd sit there with my home stereo and I think I had one of those BIC EQs with like, you know, 27 band graphic equalizer. And I'd sit and I'd muddle with the EQ for hours till it was like perfect. <laughs> so I, I think it was always part of my personality that I like to tweak things. I think that's part of a lot of beginning engineering that you want to just tweak things and, you know, you spend the next 50 years learning not to. <laughs> well, let's talk about your studio that you opened in, was it 94? Yeah, 94 in Atlanta. Okay. When did you leave New York and did you go straight to Atlanta? Uh, I left New York like 1990 and I did go straight to Atlanta I opened up a little mixing tracking place. I had, I can't remember, where, I think it was an Amic console and an Otari MTR90 two-inch machine. And I did a few records, but, you know, I was new to Atlanta and I didn't know a ton of people. I was just starting to meet some folks and start to get some real jobs. The opportunity to move into an existing studio and take a room to make for my mastering came up. And I kind of jumped on it. It just seemed like a good time and opportunity. So, so who influenced you in the, the setup and the creation of this mastering room? Who did you turn to for advice on setting up the room? 
to be absolutely honest, I didn't really have anybody to ask. (laughs) So I went through a ton of trial by mistake and fire, trying to figure out how to set up and run the studio. I think my biggest influence was probably Sterling Sound in New York. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked at them as the end-all, be-all of mastering. So whatever I could kind of glean from their setups and production and equipment, that's where I was kind of taking my influences from. But to be honest, I just kind of did what seemed logical at the time. In hindsight, a lot of it was, but I guess I was just kind of lucky for that matter. So, How long did that studio run? That ran from 1994 till 2012. Damn, that's a good run. Yeah, no, and actually we had three different locations during that time. I built a bunch of rooms and I had other engineers working for me as well. So you obviously figured it out after. Yeah, it it, it came together pretty quick. I guess around 99 was when Atlanta, the hip hop scene just kind of went boom. And all my clients that were kind of nobody the week before were now Ludacris and Little John and... All of a sudden, I was kind of thrown into, yeah, you got a gold record last week. And yeah, your song's number one on the radio now. And uh, I was like, okay, this is good. Yeah, this is what one hopes for to some degree. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you were growing, you were making a living, you were expanding for Mm -hmm. sure, and starting to become recognized for, for your work. If you could encapsulate it, what would be the big takeaway from that entire time period in Atlanta and running a studio, what are the key lessons you learned? Well, I think, you know, my dad had a little retail store. So customer service was always like the big to do for me, treating people respectfully and giving them good service, trying to give a good value for the money. I was never interested in making like all the money and trying to empty clients' pockets. I was kind of just interested in having a working relationship with the clients and continuing that. Like, I want to see clients come back. And thankfully, over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, they keep coming back. But that was my goal. And that still is my goal. Hmm. That's great advice. What happened in 2012 or what was leading up to? you closing the studio? So I guess there were several factors that happened around that time. So 2008-ish, you might remember, we had like a uh, a little bit of a economic financial crisis here. Just a little one. A little one, yeah. (laughs) So part of the fallout from that, I had bought a huge building. It was like a a 20,000 square foot building and built several studios in there and had like large overhead I also had the guy who I trained, my protege, he kind of, unbeknownst to me, was planning on opening his own place. And that happened without really my knowledge. So a lot of what I had invested in and put time in and all that was really becoming a huge weight around my neck and financial burden and mental burden, you know, just trying to take care of all this stuff that I said, this is just not worth it anymore. I want to downsize again. I went from having this big, beautiful place and many people on staff to one guy who books me and me and just a really simple process again. And I also thought at that point, 
I'm not getting any younger. I'd really like to see the world. I decided I was going to go travel around the globe and take my stuff with me. Yeah, that's, I think that's pretty fascinating on a number of levels. Did you find it almost freeing to downsize, to just like reduce it down to what you really needed? Yes. <laughs> I used to spend like one day a week in my old studio just paying bills. I'd spend the entire day as an administrator just writing checks, which we did back then, and paying bills and organizing stuff. And back then, clients used to pay you in cash also, which was a pain in the butt. And, you know, going to do bank deposits and dealing with real estate stuff, it was not fun. And then you got, you know, your staff stuff and many personalities to kind of negotiate they were great at the time, but it takes your energy and your time away and you have less time to actually do the thing you came to do, which was for me mastering. So when I was kind of at the pinnacle of my big company success and I was doing the least amount of mastering. <laughs> well, okay, this this takes a lot of changing of mindset, wouldn't you say, to, to downsize to the level that you have now? I had a lot of initial reservations. And honestly, at that time, this is kind of way before anybody worked with headphones. I was initially using in-ear monitors and nobody was doing any mastering, at least publicly, <laughs> in the box. So my initial thing was I was going to be the analog version of Slut Shamed <laughs> for uh, you know using plugins. And I was always very like, we used the best analog gear and I used to have Manly and all these other companies make me like custom analog gear. And we had a Neumann lathe and we were very analog. And so for me to kind of make that 180 switch was kind of not natural in any way, but I decided that's the way forward. So, Yeah, it's interesting that transition from mixing engineers to mixing in the box and mastering engineers moving into the box, it's for a period of time there, it was frowned upon a bit. There was a little bit of a stigma around it for some people. Did you feel the pressure just from yourself and how you would worry about being perceived? Or did you have other mastering engineers saying, oh, that'll never work? I did have a couple of naysayers. My first reactions that I had when I changed were very interesting because I thought I was going to be shamed for getting uh, out of my analog room. But it turned out that the first couple of masters I sent out, people went, what'd you do? Everything sounds even better now. <laughs> I went, really? And they went, yeah, no, it, it really sounds better. And I went, okay, I'll take that. And it was initially very encouraging after I got the first rounds of masters out. And, you know, things were even at a rough stage of development for me with my doing stuff in the box. So things only just got better and better and better. So eventually you, you not only went inside the box, you completely got rid of speakers and started working on headphones. Can you talk about that? So shockingly to many, I have not mastered with a pair of speakers since 2012. <laughs> so amazing. Not, not at all. <laughs> I think a lot of folks do find that hard to digest. What I kind of tell people is that you need to retrain your brain to do this kind of work. 
So you can't suddenly just throw on a pair of headphones and mix a record or master a record and expect it to sound good. It absolutely won't. It takes weeks and sometimes even months for your ears to adjust to a non-room playback situation. And depending on what you're using and how you're using it, it really takes time for your brain to translate all those moves you made before into moves with headphones and in the box because they react very differently. And some are more forgiving, some are less forgiving. You learn that curve, but you can't just jump right into it. Did it take you a while to make the decision on what headphones to use? Because we know how many headphones there are out there. It's a huge, huge decision to make and a lot of choices. How did you narrow it down? Initially, I used in-ears for many years, actually. And I thought that was kind of the way to go because all the headphones I'd heard up to that point, I really didn't like. I found them irritating. I found them unnatural. They, They just really didn't sit well. And I think the first real headphone usage I started wasn't until like 2018, probably. I found a company called Audizy, and that's when I first started liking headphones. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm a fan. LCD XC is, is my, my jam. Yep, got a pair of LCD 5 sitting here. It is interesting, that transition, and to each his own, right? Andrew Sheps talks about mixing on Sony 7506s. Sure, and I've used those too, yeah. To me, that's like stabbing my ears with ice picks, but that's me. And, sure. you know, so, so Andrew, Andrew's clearly worked it out. It's working for him. And I'm wondering, like, you know, moving in the box and having the clients respond immediately saying, yeah, it sounds better. What about moving to headphones? Did that have a transition, a, a break in time? Oh, like, like I said, anything you do where you're retraining your, your whole listening environment and your brain to translate moves on an EQ, it takes time to relearn. So yeah, it obviously did take me some time and some learning curve. Although I think the very first project I did on the Audizy was a number one record. And I think I just got lucky. (laughs) But yeah, it was the very first thing I did on it. And it was a huge selling record. When you master on headphones, do you ever get the opportunity to listen on speakers after the fact? Occasionally. I mean, honestly, I've moved around so much in the past five years. I rarely have a chance to have speakers set up. I've got an Amazon Echo device that I have in the house, which you know you just plug in. And I've got a pair of nice speakers and amp and all that, but I rarely get a chance to set it up. I've moved every time and reboxed them a hundred times. And most of the places I lived in overseas, I was living in Airbnbs and they'd often be like tiny little Airbnbs. And unless I was going to visit a local studio or something, I wouldn't really get a chance to use or hear speakers. So Mm. probably not. Okay. But in the rare occasion that you have heard the work that you've done on a speaker, have you been pleasantly surprised that, oh, that, that sounds pretty good? I guess not surprised. I, I, I kind of know from what I'm doing at this point that it's it's a very repeatable result. And I know how to quantify like what's going to sound good before it goes to the customer. So I guess surprised isn't the word. 
happy about it, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the brilliance of it, of course, is that you're removing the room out of the equation, essentially. So you can be anywhere at any time of the day and do your thing. Well, I, I mean, our old studios, I don't know if you know Francis Manzella, who is an acoustic designer who designed Sterling Sound and a bunch of other facilities who unfortunately passed away. He designed all my old rooms. So I had great sounding rooms previously. But when you take the acoustic part out of the equation, it's freeing. It's just plain old freeing. And you suddenly not dependent about many things because the pressure of a room would change how you hear things. The weather would change how you hear things. How much coffee you had that morning would change how you hear things. I find using headphones and before that in-ears are just so much more repeatable and reliable. It's much better for me. Do you employ any kind of cross-feed technology? I don't like anything I've heard so far. There is a bunch of guys that have tried to recruit me for using their correction software. And so far, I still prefer just straight wire out of the box and uh, just a good amplifier and a good set of headphones. And that's it. I have to admit, and I I don't want to disparage anybody or throw anybody under the bus here, but this trend towards using some kind of room simulation within headphones really baffles the hell out of me. Um, Same here. It doesn't work for me. I like my Odyssey headphones, how they sound as is. And it's the reason I chose them. To throw that other variable in there from any of the companies just makes me kind of scratch my head and go, what the hell? Yeah, I I have to agree totally. I think it's for people that switch back and forth between different environments. I think it can be useful. I think for mixers also, it has a little bit of a use because it changes your positioning, like your center channel and your sides have a different balance in a room compared to with headphones. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say for people that are certainly you know, I was in the studio yesterday, but I'm doing this on the road today and I'm mixing a record in the box. Yeah, maybe it would be useful because you can keep proportional stuff and relationships the same. But for anybody that's really committing, it makes no sense. Just to satisfy the gear itch for a few of my listeners out there, including myself, because it's fascinating what you're doing because, and I want to get to the travel aspect in a minute, but what have you ultimately decided on on what your setup is? What is your setup comprised of? It's super simple. It's like the most simple setup. It all fits into a backpack. And that's really how I traveled around the world is I had one backpack with my studio in and uh, you know one suitcase with clothing. Yeah, I mean, I have a good DAC amplifier. I have a good set of headphones and I have an interface and that is it. As far as, you know, I'm seeing these computer screens behind you, is that, is that something you carry with you? No, I don't carry the big monitors with me. That would be a little, uh, I'd either have a portable, like a, a plug-in USB monitor or a laptop or something if I was going to be back on the road and that would make more sense. And then software-wise, is there anything in particular you're fond of as far as your primary DAW for mastering? Yeah, I, I've been on WaveLab slash Cube Tech. It started as Cube Tech back in the early 2000s. 
and kind of evolved to WaveLab, I uh, think back in WaveLab 6 era, and been with them for many years now. So, Laptop-wise, if you're traveling, see, I'm at this crossroads now where I'm going to get a new MacBook Pro, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, well, I like 14-inch for the size for the travel factor, but 16-inch, I like the screen size. Where do you fall in that world? I'd say go with the smallest thing you can get, and you could always bring like a little portable secondary monitor so you could have two screens. Yeah. And that's really the best of all worlds because you want to have your tools on one side and maybe your DAW layout on the other. It's hard to cram everything into one little screen without like, you know, going page, 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 page. And that will slow you down quite a bit. But you could always plug into a local HDMI TV or something like that, which I did many times and had that as my monitor. So oh, that's a great idea. And here's a tip. I don't know if, if you know about this or the listeners. So I have an iPad Pro sitting here and in macOS Catalina, at least starting at that moment, you can actually extend your screen to your iPad seamlessly yeah, as long right. as they're on the same Wi-Fi network. And so if you're carrying a laptop and an iPad, that could do it for you. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Let's talk about the travel aspect of it. Sure. So... You got a bag for your clothes and a bag for the studio. Mm -hmm. The bonus, of course, is you get to travel all over and continue to work. So when you're traveling, I assume you're just saying, okay, I want to I ch go check this place out. I guess the only criteria is that there be a solid internet connection. That's kind of the very first thing you find out before you plan your trip. <laughs> internet speed was a, a big thing. And some of the countries were better than others. I think in Thailand, I had an okay upload and download speed. It was kind of slow. But like South Korea, it was great. Japan was great. And uh, other places, Iceland was great. 
Yeah, it just really depends on where you're at. But yeah, you have to kind of establish that you're going to have some kind of communication with your office ahead of time. Exactly. Now, here's a, a question. So Odyssey headphones, a little on the big side, a little yeah. on the heavy side, cramming this into a backpack. Do you have any packing tips, not just for the headphones, but for any of the other stuff? Packing tips for audio audio professionals. Actually, I, I probably do. So Audacy has like different sizing for some of their stuff. The new uh, LCD fives are, are, I'm sorry, this is LCD one I'm wearing right now. Uh, LCD fives, which I have over here, are actually much smaller than your LCD X's. So these are easier to pack now. But before that, I had LCD fours, which were huge and even heavier than your LCD X's. So what I used to do is there was a foam insert inside their lovely case that they give you with that. Mm -hmm. And I would take that out of the case and use that to pack the headphones. So the foam insert plus the headphones into the bag. And uh, that would be enough to protect the phones. When it comes to packing, do you just try to limit it to uh, two items? Yeah, I, I want all my stuff to be carry-on. So okay. I never checked in bags anywhere. It's just not the way an experienced traveler travels normally. So, uh, yeah, everything was carry-on and everything was small as it could be. Yeah. If it's not in those two bags, it shouldn't come it's with you. not coming. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll give you an argument in favor of that. So I went to Michigan to see my in-laws and we checked bags, but I was carrying my backpack and I was carrying an Odyssey headphones case. Right. Got dropped off at the airport at the end of the trip, left the case in my father-in-law's van. Mm realized it within five minutes, called him. I was like, you got to come back. <laughs> like, I got to have my headphones. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm a proponent of packing in the way that you are prescribing. I think it's a great way to go, especially when you're traveling, you know, in other countries, because you never have to worry about your bags getting lost. Right. You always have everything with you right there. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's the way to go. Well, I tell you what, I have a question from the audience that I want to play you. This is a question from Paul Edwards. Hi, Paul. Let's see. Let's play this back. Paul Edwards from Montreal, Canada. Um, full disclosure, I uh, was the lead audio engineer at Lander from its birth in 2014 to 2018. However, I'm now a free man and uh, out uh, working on music. I would like to know your thoughts on artificial intelligence mastering uh, and we can put that in quotations, mastering and artificial intelligence, if you want. And uh, I'd also like to know uh, if you guys aren't going to discuss it. Otherwise, um, I'd like to know your thoughts on uh, loudness and mastering and for different platforms, you know, whether it be Bandcamp, streaming sites and uh, CDs. People still do that. Uh, and talk about vinyl, too, if you want. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Paul. That's that's a great question. So. Let's take it one at a time. What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and mastering? So I was involved with some stuff about that. That's one of the current services, although I'm not currently involved with it anymore. I was involved in some early development on that stuff. I think it can have its place. It's better than the older software plugs that you could just set up really quick and do mastering. But I think that's also changed drastically in the last few years. So some of the software plugs that are kind of a one-stop, here's your mastering plugin with a bunch of presets, and you can tweak them if you want to, 
I think now are probably more flexible than some of the artificial intelligence sites. I think most engineers kind of know if they like something or they don't. So rather than get something with some preset curves or just kind of standard stuff, I think it's pretty easy for some of these engineers, both professional and amateur, to get some of these things like Ozone. And I know Plugin Alliance has their system now. And there's a few other guys, but I think there's some good options out there now. And while it's never going to be as good as a proper mastering facility, it gets you something to use and usable pretty quickly and inexpensively. So I'm not against it. Okay, so next part of his question on loudness on the different streaming platforms. What are your thoughts on on where we're at in the current state of things? You're going to laugh, but I don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> Honestly, streaming platform targets change like on a weekly basis. The worst thing you can do, I had a client ask me this, this just this past week, the worst thing you can do is target something for a specific platform. I had a client who said, you know, the true peak on your master is not 0.2 as recommended by Spotify. And I said, I don't care. Does it sound good? And uh, he said, yeah, it sounds great. I said, well, that's the way it's going to sound when it hits Spotify. <laughs> so I don't pay any attention. Not that I'm not aware of it, but I just don't care <laughs> what they've sent their standards for. And I think what overrides all of those standards are just making something sound good. <laughs> and then if it's a tenth of a dB difference from this site or that site, no one's going to hear that. As long as you don't do anything technically, a no-no that's going to cause clipping or something terrible in that department, I think if it sounds good, it's just going to sound good. And the volume is not so important. It's dependent on the style of music and the content of the track and the production. And there's apparent volume and there's physical level and they're very different. And every track needs a different treatment. I think that's great advice because oh, these tech companies are always moving and shifting. And I can see a, a future where we go back for remasters because everybody targeted the current trends of the tech companies at this moment in time and things change. Contrast that with the other part of his question regarding vinyl, something that doesn't change and the physical limitations remain as they are. What are your thoughts on vinyl? Do you do a lot of vinyl mastering? I did. Uh, we had a, a Neumann lathe for many years at my studio, which you know went bye-bye with my old analog studio, which I wish I would have hung on to because to sell an analog lathe right now is like selling gold bullion. Uh, um, so yeah, it's, it's worth about 10 times what I sold it for back in 2012. But regardless of that, vinyl is a huge headache for mastering guys. I know a lot of people love it. It's romanticized to death. When it's done right, it sounds great. But I'd say... 80 to 90% of it is not done great. <laughs> and sorry to all those cutting and pressing guys out there. There's very few people that will really spend time honing their craft that well. And the other thing is, if you physically know about lathes, lathes are all 70-year-old machines that parts are impossible to get. 
And、mm. the most critical part on a lathe is the cutting head. And it's this little piece of magnet and wire. And there used to be two guys that could rewind the coils when they blew. When, when they blow, they're about $12,000. And you can blow them so easily. <laughs> so there were two guys. One of them passed away. <laughs> Now there's basically one guy, maybe somebody else's apprenticing or something to learn to do it. So all the people cutting vinyl now are all on the very ultra conservative side of cuts because they don't want to take a chance on blowing those cutting heads. So things don't quite sound as good as they used to for the most part. There's still a few great guys out there and they do great work. But for the most part, there's a lot of bad cutters and a lot of bad pressing plants. And it becomes a giant finger pointing thing during the mastering where there's a problem on one side. It could be the lacquer master, could be the test pressing, it could be the production master. And it becomes a giant finger pointing thing saying, it's the mastering guy's fault that cut it. No, it's the guy who plated the thing. No, it's the pressing plant's fault that this doesn't sound great. And nobody wins at that point. So, everybody has to redo the masters. And the client, of course, doesn't want to pay for it because they paid for a master that's supposed to sound good, which I don't blame them. So, you know, usually somebody takes a loss at that point. And I would say this is not a rare occurrence. This happens all the time. <laughs> that was one of the reasons I got out of the vinyl business because it's a huge headache and not glamorous at all. <laughs> So, when it comes to mastering for vinyl, if your client asks for it, I assume that you do the things that you need to do to prep it for the person who's going to cut. Actually, the only thing I prep is timings and make sure they have like a very high resolution file to cut from.、Mm -hmm. But I don't do any like EQs or elliptical EQ or any of the things that some people like to do going into vinyl because everybody has a different process. So, I think most cutting engineers would be taken aback if I handed them a file that I prepared for vinyl, so to speak. You don't really need to prepare a good master for vinyl unless there's excessive bass stuff happening or sibilance or there's some phase problems. Those are when you actually need to like, get in there and do some stuff. But that's usually on the cutting engineer's end of things. And I don't want to step on people's toes. That's their deal. Makes total sense. So, this concept of traveling around, mastering, you mentioned staying at Airbnbs and stuff. I'm enamored by the concept completely. So, what would your recommendation be to somebody who wants to do that? And, kind of like an adjunct question, is what's your financial philosophy and how that? Concept of traveling around the world being an audio professional and working in the way you do, but at the same time financially keeping it together? Well, I think it shouldn't really affect your finances. Once you've exited out of your current world, if you're renting or buying a place or whatever, you're now just transferring that to a place overseas. So your expenses don't really go up. And in some cases, it actually goes down. So, your overhead could also possibly go down.、Mm -hmm. You know, I was living in a few places that were expensive Atlanta,、uh, Los Angeles, Seattle, in America. So, 
my costs, if anything, if you go to Japan or Iceland, were about the same. And the other thing that you take into consideration is some places you go to, the cost of living is much less. So you're not really having to deal with financial stuff. As far as the other thing is that you're meeting new communities when you're out there. So I have, and I'm so fortunate, a ton of friends and clients now in Iceland, which I've been going to since like 2007. And I have community there. So when I go to Iceland, which, you know, last time was a few months ago, I stay for a while and I see all my friends and I see all my clients. And it's a wonderful thing that I've been very privileged to be part of. So instead of just being part of the hip hop community of Atlanta, now I'm part of the lovely uh, Icelandic music scene and it's a small place. So you know everybody. It's, uh, uh, it's mm. the best thing ever. <laughs> what, what is your typical stay in a place? I would say minimum stay for something would probably be like three months, but it also depends on the visa ruling and application. Some places you have to get an actual work visa or there's a, a window for tourist visa. So uh, you have to kind of pay attention to that before you leave. But three months is kind of my minimum for any place. And when you get to a place, do you actively try to just assimilate and meet people quickly? Absolutely. A way of really kind of getting in quickly is to just go say hi to some of your local studios. I literally would just like call or knock on a door sometimes and say, hi, I'm a mastering guy from America. Can I come look at your studio? And you get always like a warm welcome. I've never gotten like a door closed on me. And uh, most of the times I'd make friends and sometimes you get work out of it. Sometimes you wouldn't. But that wasn't the primary reason for saying hello. It was just to be like, hey, I'm here. I want to be part of your community. Can we be friends? Can we go get a beer later? <laughs> Talk trash about the audio? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And all the while, you've got your rig there ready to go. So you keep an eye on incoming contacts for gigs. And then you schedule that appropriately to make sure that you're you're getting it done and you're getting paid and you're keeping the cash flow going, in other words. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have a wonderful office manager. This man, Kevin, has been working for me for like 12 years or maybe 14 at this point, God. And he books all my stuff. He takes care of chasing people for money, all the headachey stuff. So I just wake up in the morning, Monday through Friday, like I always have since starting mastering. I'm really strict about trying to keep banker hours for working. And I log in and I see what projects I have. I download them. I master them. I send them back. Done for the day. Look at the schedule for tomorrow. Done. Interesting. Interesting. And I don't, I'm not looking for a specific number here, but just a mm -hmm. concept. The financial arrangement between you and your manager, mm -hmm. is that just a percentage-based type arrangement? No, no. He's, he's been on salary. Oh, just on salary. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. And I'm sure there's all kinds of little systems that the two of you have between the two of you to make sure that the flow of information occurs and file delivery happens regardless of time zone. And oh, yeah. No, it's no problem at all. Actually, the thing that was really apparent were projects were getting delivered faster and more efficiently once I hit the road because a lot of times I was like a day ahead of people. And for the most part, they would get their projects back early. <laughs> It was great. It's never been a problem. Wow. Final question. 
Tell me about work-life balance. Does this just enable you to live the life that you want to live and hang out with the people you want to hang out with? I guess if there wasn't a pandemic going on, it would. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the last couple of years, we've been isolating like most other folks. And I was out in the desert in the Mojave uh, kind of staying away from everyone. And, you know, that was great because it was just us and the coyotes. That was good for then. But recently I just came back into a city, into Seattle, and I hope to start traveling again once things calm down a little bit again. But no, I, I've always been adamant about keeping banker hours. Like I don't work weekends ever. I don't work nights ever. And hmm. I do my job like it's a job. I do love what I do, but I've also known that if you don't set some borders up for people to respect, they will trample all over it. So I know I have clients saying, I just sent you this mix an hour ago. I need it back in an hour. And you're like, well, sorry, there are a bunch of other people that booked ahead of you. I'll try to get to it as soon as I can. And Thursday next week is looking like the best you're going to get. They learn to mostly accept that. And there are a few clients that I go you know, an extra mile for, actually more than a few. And I try to accommodate them the best I can, but that doesn't mean staying up all night and losing my life balance. Makes a lot of sense. So for the audience, I'll put the link in the show notes to Glenn's website, which is uh, gsmastering.com. Correct. You can reach out if you want. There's a contact form there. You can read all about Glenn's method and see his discography, which is pretty extensive, I got to say. So yeah, it's a few people in 30 years. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Glenn, really great to talk to you. I'm so glad I could have you on. I love what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. So very inspirational to me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Glenn Schick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, remember, if you want to send me a message, you can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, or you can head on over to the workingclassaudio.com website, and there there's a contact form. You can fill that out. The guest suggestions, completely different story. Fill out the guest suggestion form for that and keep those two separate if you can. Anyways, be great to hear from you reach out if you want. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith. Magical voice that it is there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. 
And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 